This podcast is brought to you by Podcast Nation. Welcome to the Mom Room Podcast. My name is Renee Rena, and I am definitely the mom friend you have always wanted. Good morning. I'm going to say good morning because I'm recording this at 8.30 in the morning. I realized last night, so usually every week on Thursdays, I send the next Tuesday's episode to my editor. And last night I'm falling asleep just as I'm about to fall asleep and I'm like, oh my God, I did not record my introduction and send it to my editor. So that's why I'm doing it at 8.30 in the morning. As many of you probably know, we have been home for what feels like forever. Milo had a cough and a runny nose a couple weeks ago, so I kept him home. And then we went up to my parents' place where he was totally fine. And then on the car ride home, he started his cough again. And he's still all like phlegmy and boogery. And so rather than bringing him to school, like he's otherwise fine. You know, he just has those symptoms. But I'm just like, you know what? I'm so sick of being sick especially because I still have like a dry cough. It's really weird. It's like my chest feels dry. It gets worse in the evening, but I was just like, you know, I'm just going to keep him home and I want him to be totally 100% better before I send him back to school. And once he does go back to school, I'm just going to, you know, wait until he gets sick again. I feel like that's what I've been doing since he started daycare. So yeah, that's that. Today's episode is the last episode, I believe, of 2021. So let me just check my little calendar. Yes. So this will be next Tuesday, December 21st. And then we do not have an episode on the 23rd, the 28th, or the 30th. So the next episode will be published on January 4th. And then the next solo episode will be on January 6th. So this is the last one of 2021. That's crazy. I'm going to put out a post of some of my favorite episodes from this past year. It's wild to think that I do two episodes a week. You know, it's just become a part of my life. I also wish that I was more chipper You know, I've been feeling so blah. That's the only way to describe it. I have a million things that I feel like I need to get done for Christmas and for whatever. And I just have no motivation to do it. I could literally just sit and stare at a wall. Like I'm just, I'm so, I don't know if it's burnout, but I'm just over everything just in a mood and I got my period yesterday. Maybe it's related to that. I don't know. But anyways, it's fitting for today's episode because today I'm speaking with TikTok's favorite psychiatrist. Her name is Dr. Melissa Shepard and she is a psychiatrist. She completed her residency at John Hopkins where she researched suicide prevention in people with Parkinson's disease. I found her on TikTok because I was just scrolling and her TikTok popped up and it, she was talking about symptoms of ADHD or characteristics of 
people with ADHD, but specifically in women. And I related to so many of the things that she was talking about. So I saved that post of hers. And then I went back and I was watching some of her TikToks and I was like, wow, this is so fascinating. So I had to have her on the podcast. It's funny because there's so many characteristics of ADHD that are so me, but then there's also some that I'm the complete opposite of. So in this episode, we get into how ADHD presents in women differently than in men, why it's commonly underdiagnosed in women. We also talk about how some characteristics kind of like coincide or exist with other things as well, like for example, anxiety or depression. So it's a really interesting episode. I feel like I learned a lot. Also, you'll notice that I have my own little ADD episode right at the beginning. It was so funny that I decided to keep it in. So enjoy that little moment. But yeah, so I hope everybody has an amazing holiday. It is so fun to be able to do this podcast and I'm so grateful for everyone that takes the time to listen or that has, you know, subscribed or given a rating or reviewed the podcast. It all helps so much. So yeah, with that being said, I will just get into today's episode with Dr. Melissa Shepard. So welcome her to the mom room. Oh my God, there's a squirrel in the tree. I thought it was a... So let's talk about ADHD. (laughs) That was the perfect intro. You don't need to record one. Oh my God. I thought it was a cat. I was like, holy. Oh my God. That is so funny. Okay. So today we're talking about ADHD. Um, But yeah, my first... Yeah, exactly. Exhibit A. So my first question was about TikTok because... That is where I found you. I often find guests on TikTok. It's just, you know, I use TikTok. I see so many interesting people and I'm like, come on the podcast. So I saw you did a TikTok on ADHD in women specifically. And so I go to your profile and I'm like, oh my God, she has 1.2 million followers on TikTok. Most of them are my mom under like alternate accounts, just to be transparent. (laughs) (laughs) So how did that start? When did you start TikTok? Why did you start TikTok? And was there like a certain video that went viral that started everything? So as with most of my life, it's all just been a series of like Bob Ross style happy accidents. So it started like right before, it was like right before the pandemic or like right when the pandemic hit. And I, I mean, my videos were not anything good. Like it was not, I'm not... I'm not all that funny. I'm not witty. I'm not, certainly do not have the dance moves, but started posting just about like mental health information and everything just kept blowing up. It just blew my mind. It was so wild. And like, I feel like as the pandemic kind of went on, I think TikTok in particular got more popular, but then also, you know, along with that, with the increasing rates of anxiety, depression, all sorts of mental health issues over the course of the pandemic. I think, you know, that's, I've seen a bunch of other like mental health professionals kind of increase in popularity over that time. And And I think a lot of it just has to do with A, there's a lot more mental health issues. B, we're talking about it a lot more. And C, it's really, really hard to get treatment in this country. So like, unfortunately, people have to turn to other resources that, you know, 
for better or for worse in a lot of ways. So I don't think there was like a particular video, but I remember waking up one morning and I had like 40,000 followers and like all of a sudden, and I was like, what is this? It's so weird. It was just wild. Did you start posting regularly or did you like gain all these followers and now you're like, oh my God, I guess I have to keep going. (laughs) Yeah, I wasn't, I wasn't like posting regularly like, oh, I have, I want to try and grow my account. It was just like, oh, this seems like a fun way to like use my off time. And then it started growing and I'm like, oh, like I kind of realized people did need this information and maybe this was a good way to, to get it out there. So by training, you are a psychiatrist. Mm -hmm. Okay. So that was like med school. So I have a PhD in psychology and I think oftentimes like the general public doesn't understand the difference between a psychiatrist, a psychologist, a therapist, a psychotherapist. Yes. So can you just give like What does a psychiatrist do? Just like a little blurb about what that is compared to a psychologist. Yeah. So for us, we go through our medical training first. So like physicians by trade, and then we decide, okay, we want to specialize in the treatment of mental health issues. We do, you know, your bachelor's and then you do four years of medical school and then you do four more years, usually four more years in a psychiatry residency, depending on if you're going to like go on to fellowship or whatever. So we tend to treat, I guess, as far as difference between psychologists and psychiatrists, you know, obviously we have like, we do the medication side of things. So I think by definition, you end up treating people that are going to be more ill because they're at the point of like needing medications And we also are not necessarily, I mean, I'm sure some are, but not necessarily trained in like diagnostic testing and like research methods, I think, as well as many psychologists are. I think there's so much variability, though, with both careers that it's probably hard to like really say what the differences are. I don't think people realize that psychiatrists go to medical school, like they are trained as medical doctors, whereas psychologists are not. But yeah, I always found that interesting. And I'm sure some psychiatrists practice, like are trained in different methods of psychotherapy, right? So it's probably like dependent upon the psychiatrist, what kind of area they focus on. Yeah, exactly. So all of us have like a bare minimum amount of psychotherapy training that we have to do. And then, you know, many will like go above that. But as we kind of alluded to, I think earlier, issues with our mental health care system mean that many psychiatrists, like you're going to get much better reimbursement for seeing patients quickly. And obviously that's really difficult to do if you're doing good therapy with people. So I think a lot of psychiatrists do end up, you know, even even if they are well-trained in psychotherapy, they end up kind of defaulting to seeing patients for medication management because A, it's a limited resource and B, it, you know, just isn't well reimbursed to do therapy. So yeah, that's interesting. My husband's a urologist, so I never thought of it that way with regard to, obviously you're in the U S 
So it's a little bit different in Canada, like how the healthcare system works, but I never thought of it in terms of like your billing per service that you're offering. And so therapy being an hour versus a typical appointment with a patient would be like 15, 20 minutes. I never even considered that. Yeah. In our country anyways, a lot of urologists, they make better money if they like do a procedure during a clinic visit, which is, I really hate that idea of like that as the best way to practice medicine, but hopefully it'll change one day. It's a strange system, but every time I learn more about it, I'm just like, what? Yeah. Well, cause none of it makes any sense. <laughs> I know. I know. We need to put like the patient care first, but it's hard. Like, I don't know the whole system. Anyways, that, this is not the topic of what we're talking about today, but it is extremely interesting. <laughs> and it is kind of related to my ADHD. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So yes, the first TikTok I saw of yours was about ADHD specifically in women. And I was like, obviously I feel like I have a lot of the characteristics of someone with ADHD, but the more I learn about it, the more I'm like, there's some things that are just completely not me. I'm almost like the opposite. So we'll get into that and kind of how to determine whether or not it's ADHD versus like anxiety or something like that. But why or how does ADHD present differently in women compared to men? And why is it often misdiagnosed or underdiagnosed in women? The first thing to say is like the diagnostic criteria that we use, you know, the diagnostic statistic manual, the DSM like has the same criteria for diagnosis, whether regardless of like how you identify what your gender identity is. That being said, it seems like based on some of the research that women are more likely to have inattentive symptoms than hyperactive symptoms. So like when we're diagnosing someone with ADHD, we're looking at two big categories. We're looking at inattention and then hyperactivity and impulsivity. Women are more likely to be on that inattentive side. And so their symptoms tend to present in a way that is more internal than external. Even if they are more hyperactive, that still tends to be displayed in a more internal way than external. So for example, someone, a woman with ADHD who is hyperactive is probably going to be like a leg jiggler, right? Like sitting here, like, you know, jiggling my leg while I'm talking to you or whatever, as opposed to a man who may feel more comfortable displaying some of that hyperactivity. So I think that's another big part of it is women are really socialized to be people pleasers, to like have this particular set of like social behaviors and to hide their symptoms really starting at a pretty early age. So more likely to have the inattentive symptoms. And then when they do have the hyperactive and impulsive symptoms, they sort of try more to hide it or to sort of translate it in a more socially acceptable way. So like when I say ADHD, the first thing that probably pops into your mind is like a five-year-old boy, like running around a classroom, ripping his shirt off. Right. And that's the, the kind of standard idea that I think even clinicians still have. It's very much so been thought of as a disorder of like young boys. And as such, I think most of the research has focused on the male population. So we've missed a lot of like, how does this actually look in women? And clinicians are just not 
as attuned to it. I think we all have like our biases in different areas. And one common bias is that women are less likely to have ADHD and it's just not true. They're less likely to be diagnosed, but probably for all the reasons that we just discussed. So I think clinicians are less likely to pick up on the symptoms when they are there for all of those different reasons. Traditionally, when you think of ADHD, I think of kids, you know, because I feel like when I was growing up, the conversation was always about children having ADHD. So if someone does have ADHD, is that something that is from childhood or can someone develop it as an adult? Good question. So technically ADHD is what we would call a neurodevelopmental disorder, right? So that means that you are born with it sort of like autism, right? Your brain just works in a different way. So that never goes away. It's always there. So technically you don't develop it at a later age. It's always been there, but I do find that the way that the symptoms presents certainly can change throughout your lifespan. So, you know, you may hear people talking about outgrowing ADHD. They still have the same, you know, brain that they had when they were born with this neurodevelopmental condition, but they learn ways to cope with it and they learn ways to deal with some of the symptoms, maybe hide some of the symptoms. So it becomes less of a problem as they age. And Likewise, you know, I think we can go through our lives with ADHD and not have it be a huge problem until we meet something that sort of surpasses our threshold of like being able to deal with it. So a super common example I'll give you is like girls that go through, you know, elementary school, middle school, high school, even college and like do okay. Maybe we pick up on some symptoms that are sort of mild, but they manage it by like exercising that I'm sure we'll talk about later or, you know, just being really obsessive about the way they structure things or just being really smart and being able to get away with it. And then they go into the workforce. They lose a lot of the structure that like school gave them and things fall apart. Or they have kids, which is a fairly decent sized stressor and things fall apart. So it's sort of like reaches when you reach over that threshold of like being able to cope with what's going on with your life, with the different coping mechanisms that you've built to deal with your ADHD, then it presents itself. So it's not that it's a new disorder that you've all of a sudden developed. It's just that now it's obvious. And before maybe you could kind of make up for it. That's interesting because if I think about my life going through grad school, like you were saying, everything is so structured and I lived by myself and I could control everything. And my apartment was perfectly clean. And now that I live in a house with my husband and two dogs and a toddler, it's just like chaos. It's like there's a tornado went through my house. And I'm like, I never used to live this way. So I don't know what happened. But it is like a major life change. One of my questions was like about ADHD. Is it that people hyper focus on things or that they can't focus or can it be either? It's fascinating. I think like attention deficit as the name of the disorder is like so misleading. I think it's better thought of in a lot of situations as like having a hypersensitive nervous system. And so a lot of times that manifests itself as 
problems focusing, but really it's not that you don't have enough ability to pay attention, but you have too much ability to pay attention. So like for not saying you have ADHD, not diagnosing you, but at the beginning when you're like, oh my God, a squirrel, (laughs) like, (laughs) like if people have ADHD, they're much more likely to notice things that are like extraneous and maybe not relevant to your podcast. (laughs) But so other people's brains might like automatically filter that out. Whereas like the brain with ADHD may be like, oh my God, that's relevant. And so is that. And so is that. And so is that. So, and I also just completely forgot what you asked me because that was such a funny thing. (laughs) And actually that's another good example of the ADHD brain. So I've been like pretty open about my own ADHD on my social media channels. Even the internal attention. So like when we think of, we think of ADHD as like, you know, seeing the squirrel in the tree and getting distracted, but you also have a lot of thoughts that run through your head and people with ADHD are more likely to go and chase those and like totally lose track of the question or the thing that they were talking about. So we think of it as like too much attention. And sometimes when that attention gets channeled into something that you're super interested in, or it's just the stars align for whatever reason, then you get into that hyper-focus mode, which can be really helpful for some people with ADHD. It's when they like get that project done that they've been procrastinating on all semester. So yeah, it's a little bit of both. Most clinicians will tell you they don't like the attention deficit name. You know, if we could figure out a better name that included like the executive dysfunction and the hypersensitivity of your nervous system, it just would be... I don't know. We should come up with a new name, but maybe that's for another podcast. My husband and I both turn the big four zero next year, and we have been thinking a lot about our long-term health. We want to get smarter about our health, make better choices, but also not feel overwhelmed trying to separate fact from fiction. There is so much information out there and it can be hard to figure out what applies to you, what is right, and what is wrong. Well, let me introduce you to the Zoe Science and Nutrition Podcast. With the help of world-leading scientists, they help you make smarter health choices every week. Don't just take my word for it. Naomi's Apple Review says, Zoe Science and Nutrition is super easy to consume even if you don't understand the science. With loads of actionable tips, a great mix of guests, and interesting cutting-edge science. You can't go wrong with a weekly podcast where world-leading scientists explain how their own research could improve your health. If you're ready to join millions of others like Naomi transforming their health, then search for Zoe Science and Nutrition wherever you listen to podcasts. Shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode of The Mom Room and providing me with samples. You know how a lot of people can't leave the house without a water bottle? It's like their emotional support water bottle. I am the exact same way with facial tissues. And that is because I have such bad allergies, specifically in my sinuses, to the point where I know I'm going to have to blow my nose multiple times in a day, and I cannot be out in public without my emotional support facial tissues. 
Luckily, for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin Clear with Claritin D. Designed for serious allergy sufferers, Claritin D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so that you can breathe better. This double action combination of prescription strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available relieves sneezing, a runny nose, itchy and watery eyes, an itchy nose and throat, and sinus congestion and pressure with ease. Now I know if I have a big event, maybe I'm going to a concert, going out for dinner. I don't want to be blowing my nose every two seconds. It's very unbecoming. And so I will take Claritin D and enjoy my evening. Ready to live life as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter or ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. My husband, I'll always remember, we were driving through Vancouver like a couple years ago and we're just like driving. Neither of us are talking like the radio's on and like 10 minutes pass and he's like, what are you thinking about? Or he just asked something silly and I said, do you actually want to know the thoughts that have been going through my mind the last 10 minutes? And he's like, oh my God, what? Yeah. And I was like, honestly, because we were passing these fields that were like growing cherries. And I was just like, okay, they grow the cherries. They have these like gun, because he was explaining how these things are in the fields where like the guns go off and scare the birds so they don't eat the cherries or like these like loud noises. And I just had like this series of thoughts that just lasted forever, like (laughs) thinking about all these different things and all these different scenarios. And he was like, are you shitting me right now? Like, that's what you were just thinking about. And I was like, yes. It's so fascinating. (laughs) If you can like catch yourself in a like you, you're like, oh, that was a really weird thought I just had. And then like try to walk it back and see where it came from. It's fascinating. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's like how, like, and meanwhile, he's just like listening to the radio. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So like, it's, it's annoying a lot of times because like, it's really hard to focus if you're just like bouncing from idea to idea. But also, I mean, some of the most creative people are people with ADHD and it's for the same reason. Like if you're bouncing around to that many ideas, you're eventually going to hit on something great. Um, Just, just steer statistically speaking. So you'll notice, I mean, a lot of people on TikTok, a lot of creators to talk a lot about their ADHD. And I don't think it's a, I don't think it's a coincidence that many of them do have ADHD because it's a lot easier to make videos if you're just, you know, dreaming them up in the shower in the morning or whatever, when you wash your hair for the 40th time. (laughs) When I'm really into TikTok and like creating content, that's how my days go like everything is running in TikToks. It's weird. It's really strange. What are some signs of children that would have ADHD, like things to look out for? Yeah. So kids, I kind of think of with any sort of psychiatric disorder as being many of the symptoms may be similar to adults, but also they don't have that developed prefrontal cortex yet. So they really lack the you know, control and the ability to channel their symptoms that maybe adults would have. So if a kid has ADHD, their hyperactivity is typically going to be a little bit more obvious. 
or they're going to be, you know, inattentive to the point where their teacher has to call their name multiple times, except for in cases where they can make up for it with, you know, intelligence or their, you know, social skills, whatever. So oftentimes the symptoms are very similar, but can be a little bit more obvious depending on the kid. Because you always hear about like the ADHD, maybe not so much anymore, but previously like that it was always like overdiagnosed because kids are more likely just to behave in those ways naturally. And so is it the process of like actually diagnosing someone, and this could be like an adult or a child, what does that process look like? Yeah, it's it's tough. I, I think about this sometimes like, so full disclosure, I am not a child psychiatrist. So they're going to have a lot more training and expertise. And I think if you do want to, you know, if you're concerned that something might be going on with your child, like taking them to someone who is a specialist, if you can get it, I think is like the best thing to do. There are even like focused specialized ADHD clinics where that's like all they treat and they can really be helpful. So yeah, kids naturally are disorganized and a little impulsive and a little hyperactive. But, you know, in my mind, it comes back to kind of those standard DSM criteria that we put in every disorder. Like, is it to the point where it's disrupting their day-to-day life? Is it to the point where it's impairing their ability to function and do the things they want to do? A kid that is a little bit impulsive and, you know, maybe irritates their friends or their teacher every so often is very different from a kid who is so impulsive that they can't make friends or so impulsive that they have to be kicked out of the classroom multiple times a week. So it's sort of a difference of degrees. And I think that goes for adults as well. You know, many people will find that some of the symptoms of ADHD resonate because like anxiety disorders, like depressive disorders, it's normal for us to all have some of those symptoms, right? Like we all get anxious sometimes. We all feel sad sometimes. But it's only when it reaches the threshold of getting in the way of being able to engage in your life and do the things that you want to do and it's extremely bothersome, that's when it crosses over that threshold from, you know, a normal variant of a personality to being a disorder. I think of it similar because like I was saying, when I hear about symptoms, I'm like, oh my God, I have that, but I don't think that I do. And then it's similar because I was specialized in eating disorders in grad school. And so every time someone's like, you know, you explain what binge eating disorder is to someone and they're like, I have that. And it's the same kind of thing. It's like, no, you may have like certain characteristics or like disordered eating patterns sometimes, but like many people do not actually meet the criteria for a diagnosis. So it's like I exhibit characteristics of ADHD sometimes, especially when there's a squirrel in the tree, but (laughs) (laughs) I don't think I necessarily have it because I don't think I meet like the full-fledged criteria. So that's kind of important. You mentioned the overdiagnosis thing, and I think that's, I think it's an interesting topic that I've been thinking about a lot lately. And I think you're, you're probably right. Like it's, you know, most of us, as far as like, you know, clinical psychologists and, and psychiatrists think that ADHD is probably overdiagnosed in young boys. Many of us also think that it's probably underdiagnosed in like adult professional women. 
just because of the way that it's been studied over the years. I think the other kind of really important thing with kids and the reason that I say like get a specialist if you can is because the disorganization, hyperactivity, impulsivity, difficulty paying attention, like all of those things are going to come up in some form in kids with anxiety disorders, depressive disorders, history of trauma, like all of that stuff. So it really does need to be parsed out by a clinician who's experienced in looking into that stuff. What are, because I definitely have anxiety and I'm curious, like what are some of the overlap of let's say depression, anxiety, and ADHD? Like, are there things that would present in like anxiety and ADHD or depression and ADHD? I think the biggest and sort of the easiest one to explain is like the inattention piece of things. So if you have a bad anxiety disorder or say say you have generalized anxiety disorder, you're worried about things all the time. You're worried about a whole bunch of different things. I kind of think of it as like having too many tabs open on your computer. It's going to slow down the whole process, right? So if you're worrying about things or if you're so depressed that you're ruminating on all of the terrible things that have happened to you in the past, you're going to be more focused on that. And so you're going to have more difficulty focusing on other things. So, you know, if you have social anxiety, for example, you're at a party, you're not going to be able to remember people's names as easily because you're so anxious about everything that's going on. It's not necessarily that that person has ADHD and just can't pay attention to the person who's introducing themselves, but their other symptoms are kind of getting in the way of being able to pay attention. And if you can't pay attention, you can't encode the memory to then retrieve later. So memory is a big thing, concentration, focus, all of that stuff can definitely overlap. In people that have like an agitated depression or, an, or anxiety disorders, they can seem pretty hyperactive sometimes because they're fidgety and, you know, moving around because of their anxiety. And, you know, one of the other big areas that we talk about with ADHD that I think is just, it's not an official diagnostic criteria, but it's getting a lot more research attention lately, is this concept of rejection sensitivity dysphoria. So the idea with that is that people with ADHD in keeping with their hypersensitive nervous system, are also hypersensitive to criticism and rejection. And so as you can imagine, that's also something that is going to come up in someone with social anxiety, with depression. So really what we have to do is step back and look at all of the symptoms kind of together, take them all together and say, okay, what kind of fits best with this? It's possible that people have both. So you can certainly have anxiety and depression and ADHD. But if if the symptoms are sort of better explained by one disorder over the other, then we would go with that, sort of treat that, focus on that, and see if the symptoms of the other disorder or what appears to be the other disorder then get better. But it can be really, really hard to parse out sometimes. And there are some times where we just say, okay, you know what? We don't know. We're going to try and treat it and just see how you do. Right. So like start by treating this, see what happens. And, you know, if it doesn't work out, try the other route, see what happens. So speaking of treatment, let's talk a little bit about treatment strategies. I know you had mentioned there are medications, but then there's also things that are not medications that people can do even just to manage symptoms. So let's start with maybe the non- medication strategies. 
These are good options, especially if your symptoms are relatively mild and you're like, man, I don't know if this is ADHD, maybe it's something else. Because these are things that are going to help like anybody. And they're also going to help you if, you know, say your symptoms do look like ADHD, but are really related to your anxiety or your depression, they're still going to be helpful. So the two biggest interventions that I counsel people on when we're talking about a diagnosis of ADHD are going to be exercise and mindfulness meditation. Like hands down, best researched, greatest effect size There are some people where, you know, anecdotally, when they exercise, if they exercise and do like their normal routine, they don't even need to take their stimulant medicine that day because it's so effective. But exercise, you know, it can be anything that you're interested in, anything that gets your heart rate up, doesn't have to be some intense workout routine. But it really does seem that the more, you know, people with ADHD exercise up to, you know, a reasonable limit, of course, it seems to be more and more effective. And you can use that as like a, you know, daily exercise habit. You can also use it when you're feeling like your focus is really terrible. Just go for a quick, brisk walk, do a couple jumping jacks at your desk, like whatever you need to do can help reset your brain. And the other thing being mindfulness meditation. So with mindfulness meditation, <laughs> if you have ADHD and you hear the word meditation, you're immediately going to want to like vomit in your mouth because you're like, that sounds miserable. But it's, impossible, but it's actually, it can be so helpful if you like kind of let go of the pressure that many people put on themselves to meditate. So with mindfulness meditation, the idea is that you are bringing your attention back to the present without judgment. And it's just a practice of like setting aside a certain amount of time to practice bringing your attention back to the present. And it's a lot like exercise does for your muscles where the more you practice that bicep curl, the stronger your bicep gets. The more you practice bringing your attention back to the present with mindfulness meditation, the stronger your mindfulness muscle gets. And that ultimately helps you pay better attention in like your day-to-day life. This episode is brought to you by Little Spoon. If you're like me, then the bane of your existence is thinking about what to feed your children, prepping food, going to the grocery store, all of the above. Who has the time? We are all so busy, and it's important to incorporate things into our life that keep our life as simple and convenient as possible. Little Spoon is one way to do just that. They deliver fresh, healthy meals and snacks straight to your door that your kid will love at every eating stage they are in. The baby blends are fresh, organic baby food from single ingredients to multi-textured purees to take the stress out of starting solids. They partner with Clean Label Project to test their blends for 400 plus contaminants, including heavy metals, so you know you're getting good stuff. The Biteables are finger food meals that are cut to size to promote easy self-feeding, and they are healthy, balanced, and free of artificial junk. The Little Spoon Plates are toddler and big kid meals that are free of junk and they taste amazing. Even the pickiest eaters will love them. Think hidden veggie mac and cheese, chicken nuggets, and adventurous eats like potstickers, gnocchi, and more. They also offer really fun things like puffs, they have smoothies, lunchers, and snacks. 
you quite literally never have to think about food again. It's just easy peasy. And did I mention this all comes right to your door? It is so flexible, so easy, and everything stores right in the fridge and freezer. The price is right, the quality is unmatched, you are going to love it and your kids are going to love it. It is just a huge win for your family. Simplify your kids' mealtime with 30% off your first order. Go to littlespoon.com slash momroom and enter our code momroom at checkout to get 30% off your first Little Spoon order. This episode is brought to you by Lola V. Lola V is an award-winning hair care line by none other than Jennifer Aniston. They offer clean, plant-powered products for every hair type and texture. I just did my whole hair care routine with all the products the other night and I am obsessed. Along with incredible shampoo and conditioner, they have an intensive repair treatment that you can use once a week. They also have a lightweight hair oil. There's a leave-in treatment and there's also a glossing detangling which I need because lately I want to do my hair in like a slicked back look, but my hair is too frizzy. Get 15% off Lola V with the code MOMROOM at www.lolav.com slash MOMROOM and Lola V is L-O-L-A-V-I-E. Okay, so the first time, this was years ago before I had Milo, I wanted to be the kind of person that did yoga. So I was like, Renee, I made myself go to a yoga class and I'm like, I'm going to start doing yoga. The first class I did, I get into the room. Everyone's like talking and like laying out their mats and like getting ready for the class. And then the instructor comes in and it's like, he starts the class. Everybody's dead silent. And like, we're just sitting there. I was having the worst anxiety. I was like, oh my God, oh my God, I'm dying, I'm dying, get me out of this room. And then I just kept going, made myself like keep going, keep going. And eventually I craved that environment, like to be sitting there in silence and like working on breathing, even the working on breathing in yoga. At first I was like, I can't breathe how he's (laughs) asking me to breathe. I literally can't do it. And then by the end of, you know, after doing yoga for so many like months and like a couple years, I would find myself even driving in the car doing these like breathing exercises and it would just make me feel so much better. So yoga, like I can totally understand where, because even when I hear meditation, I'm like, oh God, like here we go. Because that's how I felt in my first yoga class, like pure anxiety. Like I can't handle the silence. Like, no. Yeah. Yeah. No, but you're exactly right. Like the practice, it's the practice of bringing it back. So like I tell people with ADHD, I don't want you to clear your mind. That's not the idea with meditation because A, it's not going to work and you're just going to get angry. And B, it doesn't, that doesn't do anything for you to just sit there with your your mind blank unless you're, I don't know, a meditation practitioner for, you know, it's been doing this for many, many years the point is actually to get distracted so that you can then practice noticing when you're distracted and bringing your attention back. Cause that's, what's going to help you in your real, you know, day-to-day life. You don't, we don't walk around with our minds cleared all the time and it wouldn't be tremendously useful for us to do that anyways. But the practice of bringing your mind back to the present when you get off track, that's super helpful. If someone's listening to this and they're like, I want to start doing that, but I don't know how, is there like a guided something that you would recommend to people? Let me see. Can I send you some resources? 
Oh yeah, send me links and I'll put them in the episode notes. Okay, perfect. Yeah, let me send you some stuff because I'm I'm thinking of some things, but I can't remember the names off the top of my head. But yeah, there's a lot of really great resources. There are even a lot of like paid apps that do a pretty good job. Well, probably some free ones too, but like Headspace is one that I'm thinking of that does a good job and a couple others that I'll, I'll send to you. With regard to medication, are there specific medications that treat ADHD or is like, is there like a whole bunch of different medications or is there like one main medication that people would take? So there are a bunch of them and I kind of think of them in a couple different categories. So there are stimulant medicines and non-stimulant medicines. And those are the kind of like big, that's the big dividing factor. So the stimulant medicines in general, and this is just broad strokes, but they tend to be a little bit more effective for treating ADHD, but they also are more likely to come with side effects, risk of, you know, things like dependence and things like that. The non-stimulant medicines tend to be slightly less effective, but kind of depends on the person, but they are also generally less likely to cause side effects. So it really just depends on, you know, what side effects you're most at risk for. So like for somebody with anxiety and ADHD, we may be a little bit more cautious or go a little bit slower when starting a stimulant specifically, because that there's a risk that that could increase anxiety you know, for somebody with depression and ADHD, oftentimes clinicians will start with one called bupropion or Welbutrin because that's something that has shown some benefit in both ADHD and depression. So it really kind of depends on what your unique situation is, but there are a lot of different options that people can try and they can be tremendously helpful for people who've tried sort of the non-medication interventions and haven't been able to do them or have found that they're not as effective as what they need. Is citalopram, that's an SSRI, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay, so that's what I take. Okay, yeah, we don't usually use that one for ADHD, but it's a great medicine for anxiety or depression. And so I feel like any mental health disorder can potentially worsen another. So sometimes if I have somebody who is very anxious or very depressed, and like we talked about, they have these ADHD symptoms or they do have ADHD that, you know, has kind of worsened as their depression or anxiety has worsened. As we get one under control, it'll be easier for them to control the other. So like, for example, if you are profoundly depressed and I'm like, oh, you should exercise to make your ADHD better, you're going to tell me to F off, rightfully so. (laughs) So maybe we start with some citalopram and you get feeling better and then you're able to exercise and then you're able to get some of those ADHD symptoms and depression symptoms under better control. I always talk about that I take citalopram and it literally changed my life. I would have dropped out of my master's Like I was ready to drop out because I was so anxious, started citalopram and now I have a PhD because it changed my life and like my quality of life. So for people out there, because I know so many people are hesitant to start a medication that is specifically for mental health because I don't know if it's because like there's a stigma or it's like, oh, once I start taking this, then it's a known fact that I have a mental health issue What is your advice for people who maybe think that they should be on something, but they're nervous to take that step? 
You know, it's fascinating. So I'm on Zoloft, Team Zoloft over here, like all the way, <laughs> um, and had a very similar experience. I, I think a lot of it is stigma. You know, the more we talk about this stuff and the more like you and I talk about how much we love our antidepressants, <laughs> like the more likely other people, I think we'll, we'll be like, oh, they're like decently accomplished women. Like they're not total <laughs> failures. So maybe it's okay. So I think stigma probably has a lot to do with it. I think we still have this idea that like mental health issues are personality flaws or moral failings or whatever. And so I think with that comes this idea that if we have depression or anxiety, we just need to try harder. So like why take a pill when you can just try your way out of it? For those of us who have actually like had loved ones that have had these disorders or have had these disorders ourselves, we know that that's bullshit and is not going to work ever. But, you know, there are some cases where you can get a little bit better. But in many cases, you need professional help, whether that's therapy, which I think is also still pretty stigmatized, or medications. And, you know, I tell a lot of my patients, you're, you're proof that you can struggle through it right now. Like here you are struggling through it. You're, you're making it through your symptoms. It's more of a matter of, do you want this extra tool in your toolbox that could potentially help you? you were surviving without your citalopram. I was surviving without my Zoloft, my sertraline, but it was pretty damn miserable. So I decided to use this other tool that I potentially had in my toolbox to see if that would help. The other thing I tell people is like, you can stop the medicine. You don't have to keep taking it. If you find that it's not helping or that there are side effects, people tell me they worry it's going to make them like a zombie or less like themselves, then we'll stop the medicine because that's not the goal. The goal is for it to be more benefit than downside. The other thing I like to really tell people a lot is that mental health issues are very unique in that they are in your brain. So they are going to affect the function of your brain and they don't want to be treated. So it's you know, unlike hypertension where your blood pressure is high, your brain doesn't say, oh, I don't think I should take this medicine. It's going to do something, you know, it's going to make me less like myself. It's going to, you know, change my personality, whatever. With depression and anxiety, we fear taking the medicines because of the illness. So like, for example, I was afraid of taking the medicine Actually, my sister just texted me about this last night. I should use her example. But she was like, my doctor prescribed me something for anxiety, but I'm too anxious to actually take it. I was like, yeah, that's a thing. Um, it's, <laughs> it's part of the illness. And then you'll notice like as you take it or as you start therapy it, and your symptoms get better, it becomes a little bit less scary. So just remembering like make sure you find a clinician who helps you to feel empowered, helps you to feel like you are the one in control of the treatment that you're getting. And then have it be an effort between the two of you to find something that is going to be helpful, that's more help than harm. And if you don't like it at any point, you are in control of stopping. You are in control of what you want to do with the medicine. But for a lot of people, it is a tool that can be tremendously helpful. And, you know, I think it's something that if you're struggling, just it's okay to consider it. There's nothing wrong with you. Like, I know I had some friends in my life who 
again, it was like these successful women who were like in med school and stuff. And they had told me, cause I opened up to them about anxiety and they were like, oh, like I totally can relate. Like, this is what I take. It's been, you know, like life changing. And I think that's great when people are open about it, because I think some people have this idea that you need to be like completely non-functioning to take medication. Like they don't think of mental health as like a, a spectrum, you know? And it's like, no, I was pretty happy. Like I have good family life. I was in my master's. I had a lot of friends, but I hated the way I was feeling a lot of the time. And it was out of my control. Like I remember just like sitting on my bed, like crying, like the world was going to end. And it was like, no, Renee, you, you just literally have to go to a meeting tomorrow and introduce yourself. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Calm and down. Like, to me, <laughs> to me, that was like the worst thing ever. I was, and now I have a podcast for a living. Right, exactly. Yeah. Make it make sense. But yeah, I think people assume like they have to be completely non-functioning and it's like, no, but you know, you could feel 10 times better if you are struggling with certain things. And you also reduce your risk of the the disorders getting worse. Like, you know, we don't wait to treat someone's hypertension until they actually have a stroke. Like we start treating it before that gets to that point. Right. And it's the same with disorders like ADHD, anxiety, depression. As you go untreated, your risk for developing worsening symptoms and your risk for developing additional mental health issues is compounded. And that's why many, many women, especially with ADHD, first come in to see me, not because of ADHD symptoms, but because of anxiety or depression that's developed because of many, many years of unrecognized ADHD and the difficulty coping with that. I remember hearing some statistics somewhere that like kids with ADHD are you know, criticized over 20,000 times more than kids without ADHD during their, you know, childhood. And just to think about like the toll that that would take on your self-esteem and on your anxiety levels and on your depression levels, like it's not just a matter of comfort to treat these things. They have very real ramifications down the line. And we want to make sure that we are treating mental health with the same importance as we treat our physical health. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a good way to look at therapy as well. Don't wait until you are in like a dire situation. You know, look at it as prevention almost, as like just maintaining a healthy mental state. So lastly, I just thought you could tell everybody where they can find you and what are your plans with TikTok? Good question. It's usually fun. So I think I want to keep doing <laughs> too many, too many ideas right now. And, and yeah, I don't know where I'm, where I'm going from here. So stay tuned to find out. We'll find out together. Do your colleagues think it's funny that you have this massive TikTok account? I'm still an assistant professor at Hopkins. I teach a class there because I, I trained there and like stayed on as faculty. And I teach the residents there once a week. And I was like, they ever find out about my TikTok, like the chair of the department, I was like, I know they're just going to be like so appalled by this. And they've been like, they did find out about it shockingly. And they were like so supportive and so excited about it. And they're like, you're famous. I was like, "Mm, I'm not sure that's what that is, but thank you. (laughs) 
<laughs> so they, it's actually been really great how supportive they've been. It's, it's really cute. Have students recognized you? Yeah, well, they're residents. So I feel like that's cheating because they've kind of, it's easier to know me from like residency. So they probably like follow me for, you know, friend of a friend reasons. So what is your TikTok handle? If people want to find it, I'm going to put it in the um, episode notes. Yeah, it's at Dr. Shepherd underscore MD. And I'm on TikTok, Instagram, just started a Twitter like yesterday. <laughs> oh, nice. I wish I was more active on Twitter. Seems a little too mature for me, but um, <laughs> I blog, try to keep up with YouTube, but you know, like I said, too many ideas to, to keep up with everything. What is your blog? It is whatever comes into my mind. It's drmelissashepherd.com. Oh, okay. Nice. Okay. It's it's sort of a potpourri of like mental health and mental wellness issues. So we do talk about ADHD for sure on there sometime. I, sometimes I just wrote something on like the most frequently asked questions I get on ADHD. Oh, I love that. Yeah. So just stuff like that. It's fun. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for having this conversation with me. This was great. I'm so happy I came across you on TikTok. Me too. I think I first found you because of a Hanson shirt. I'm pretty sure. Do you have a Hanson shirt? Oh, I have many. I'm pretty sure that's what drew me to you, like a moth to the flame. But <laughs> I'm glad I found you. Were you, you a big Hanson fan? Yes, girl, of course. Zach was my boo. Me too. How old are you? <laughs> I'm 34. 33. Sorry, about to turn 34. I'm 36. Okay. And yeah, big Hanson fan, like massive. But yeah, Zach was my favorite too. They're low-key still, like, really good. Just saying. Taylor Hansen is so good-looking as an adult. <laughs> quite attractive. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I'm trying to actually get them on the podcast. Like, oh my God, Taylor Hansen has seven kids. Did you know that? No. That's absurd. Taylor Hansen has seven kids. I think Zach has four. And I was like, they need to come on the podcast. Like, they're dads now. Yeah. They really should. I mean, one day, if I ever run across them, I'll be like, hey, there's this girl, Renee, trying to get a hold of you. (laughs) Please get back to her. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. It was fun. 